Are you ready to listen to an audio teaching by the humble pioneer of Vivify Ministry, Kenneth Usonia? Oh, I bet you are. Listen as your hearts are awakened to the finished work of Christ and as deep truths are unfolded in the simplest ways possible. Now, let's get right to it. Social media is. What is what is the theme for this month? Knowing the ABCs. Awesome. You know, at every point in time, no matter how high sounding you may be, you know how to use big grammar. All of that is made up of the basic things. Your ABCs, right? Yes. Who can give me a very complex word? Show yourself now. Yeah. Internal. Thank you very much, right? What does he say? Yeah, hey, I say, show yourself now. Huh? Interdenominationalism. Alright, interdenominationalism, right? Who else can give it a very complex word? Any English students here? You have one? Sir? I like, I like what you do there. Praise God. But every, no matter how high, how complex, how complex or complicated it is, it is made up of what? A, B, C. And many people in their relationship with God want to grow deeper. They want to scour the depths of God's grace and love and everything. They want to go into the signs, the powers, you know, the miracles. But when the foundation is not strong, there will be a very big issue. Praise God. Many people have not built their foundation on the foundational things. And that's the purpose of this month. We want to take you back to where you started from. Because as much as, um, by the grace of God, um, Verify has been close to three years running now. And God has been faithful that we have grown together, gone so far. But as much as we are going far, it's always good to remind ourselves of the basic things. Right? To remind ourselves of the things that are foundational. Without them, there can be no Christianity. Without them, there can be no spiritual growth. And many people don't have this foundation. Alright? Sunday school in church is not enough. Amen, no? Amen. Because what that was was spoon feeding. What this is, is giving you a chance to see for yourself, understand it for yourself, and then get to live accordingly. Amen. So today's teaching is going to be about the but moment. Say the but moment. The but moment. And for some of you that have been following um, what are our teachings for this semester, you have an, an idea of what that might mean. But before I get ahead of myself, I want to start on this note. That God invested all of his resources into one plan. This is too. One plan. God invested all his resources, everything, even his very life, for one plan. And how that plan unfolds is in three sequences, in three phases, in three stages, in three forms, whatever grammar you want to use. You see this plan in three steps. 
Praise God. So that's where I want to start from. I call them the three dimensions of God's plan. Or the three tenses of God's plan. The three dimensions of God's plan. The first one is this. Are you with me? Yes. The first one is the first tense. What are the tenses we have in English language? Then what else? There's still past participles, present, all of very good. The wife was on Regardless of all these tenses, we have the three fundamental ones, right? Past, future, very good. Those are the tenses for salvation. Those are the tenses of God's plan. So the first one we see is, we have been saved. Or if I want to go strictly by past tense, we were saved. We were saved. We were saved. What you can call this is one word. It's called justification. Justification. You've heard that word before, haven't you? Very good. That's the first initial step for salvation. You can also call this the initial step. Alright? So that's the first one. Justification. And what does justification mean? Under this one, there are also three. Wait, don't worry, just follow me, okay? Under this one, there are three. The first one is the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. And Ephesians 1, 7. And by his blood we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. That's what that place says. Alright? So there is forgiveness of sins in justification. The second one is guilt is erased. In this justification process, all guilt is erased. The guilt of your sins, the shame of your of your iniquity is all removed at this point. And now you see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no one. But the nation to them who are in Christ Jesus. The guilt is gone. Cleared away. And then after things have been taken away, right, sins are what? Forgiven. Guilt is removed. What then happens? Righteousness is imputed. Okay? So it doesn't just leave you empty without sin. It gives you something. There is an exchange. When Christ took our sins on the cross and did what? Gave us something else. His righteousness. So there was righteousness imputed. Amen. Alright, now the second stage of God's plan of salvation is this. We said what? The first one is we were saved. The next one is we are being saved. We are being saved. It gives you the idea of a process. A progressive thing, right? So the word that I'll use, the Asian word, is sanctification. What was the first one? Justification. Alright, so the second one is sanctification. What does it mean to sanctify? Who has an idea? Yeah, what's say something? To make clean. To make clean? Okay, alright. Who has another word? 
Everybody wanted to say, all right. Then everybody wants to try again. Sanctify. Yes, that's the word. To separate. In a sense, what you said to be washed, that makes sense that you are separated from what death, right? If you're being washed. It, the literal meaning is set apart. And from the Greek word, it means the same thing as holiness. To make something holy. Alright? To set something apart. So that is the process, the second stage of God's plan. Not just to save you, but you are being saved. There is a continuous working by His Spirit. Alright? And this one too has three parts. There is an instantaneous sanctification. Alright, sorry about the big grammar, but then you get the point. There's a sanctification that happens at the beginning, where you are set apart. You know that scripture in First Peter 2 9. We are what? A chosen generation. Real priesthood. A holy nation. Right? That word holy means you are set apart from every other one. That says, who has, who, have been, who has called us out of what? Darkness. What does that word called out sound like? Setting apart. Do you understand? So once that happened, once salvation was given, there was a setting apart from the world and to the Lord. Praise God. Then the second one is a progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. And in that part, you see scriptures like this. Let me open to First Peter one fifteen. First Peter one, verse fifteen. Are we there? Our data can someone else open to Second Corinthians seven, verse one. So first Peter one fifteen, second Corinthians seven one. First Peter one fifteen, who's there? Can you read it please? Alright, so as he who what? Called you. That's a word at its root core. It's talking about setting apart. He is what? Holy. So he tells you the, the premise for which you should be what? Holy as well. So you don't just say, oh, I'm saved, washed, sanctified, redeemed. There is a place of being holy, like actually looking like the one who called you. Progressive. Second Corinthians 7, verse 1. Therefore, Having this promise, Thank you. Like I said, in, in, in Christianity, like I always used to say, there is a reference point for everything that we do. You know, we had our relationship series just recently, and we said something. Husbands, love your wives as what? Christ, Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands, even as what? The church submits to Christ. That reference point is always important for you to know why you're doing anything in the body of Christ. Right? And here it tells you, it gives you a what? A reference point. That what? According to the promises you have received, by this then, these promises you have, you can now cleanse yourself from all the filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Right? So that's a place of doing away with the things that don't look like you. Are you listening? Are you listening, guys? Yes. What happens as salvation is a 
change of nature, a change of position, and a change of location. I'll explain this further. We'll just write that down too. Why is everything 3-3? Three, three? I, I don't understand. But there was a change of nature. There was a change of what? Position. And there was a change of location. The change of nature happened where Ezekiel 36, verse 27 says, I will take away that stony heart and I will put my spirit within you, give you a heart of flesh. Alright? So that was a nature change, one from the Adamic nature, the sinful nature, to the nature of Christ. So there was a nature change, and what happened is something that is invisible to the visible eyes. So perhaps we are saved, you, you know, you used to be well rounded, or you are down to earth, and you got saved, and you're expecting that you, you start reaching for the skies, or that you'll be summarized. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? It won't happen physically, right? When you got saved, how many of you felt electric shocks? I'm the only one. Okay, very good. It's not meant to happen, but <laughs> when it happened, maybe there was. What happens is salvation is not merely a physical thing. Of course, with salvation comes a change of your desires. So yes, there will be emotions in it. There will be where your heart is fixed on those things. But primarily, it's not something that, oh, you know, Yanu just, they do altar call, Yanu now comes, Lord, I want salvation. Then, we now use our spiritometer. Ah, he's saved. It's not something you will see with your physical eyes, but it's something that happens within, right? So I'll put my spirit within you. There is an inward spiritual change of nature. But the reason why sanctification is important in this process is because your outward parts might not look like what's on the inside. Why? The Bible says there are two that war against each other. Galatians chapter 5. The flesh and the spirit. Alright? And you can read Romans 8. You see all of it. That wrestle. The flesh, the spirit. Flesh, the spirit. But the beautiful thing is about what's going to happen in the third stage. Alright, before I get to that, I talked about what? Instantaneous sanctification, right? Progressive sanctification. Then there's ultimate sanctification. Ultimate sanctification. Where that's your called out process. It's complete. That process of looking like the one who called you is complete. Amen. So this will bring me to the third step in God's salvation plan. This plan that he invested everything into, even his very life. And that is what? We said we were what? Number one, we were saved. Right? We are what? Being saved. And the final step is we will be saved. We shall be saved. We shall be saved. And the Christian word for that is glorification. Glorification. Some some other um, word for it could be resurrection. All right. Moshe have shown inside. That's the point. Amen. So we see that third stage, right? Glorification. What does this mean? What does glorification mean? There was something that happened to Jesus after he died and he rose up. All right. They saw him. They saw Jesus. The Bible talked about how they were in 
an enclosed space, a room. The doors were locked. Alright? Why were the doors locked? These guys were in hiding. Roman soldiers were looking for them. Jesus' body was not found. So they wanted to know where these disciples were, whether they stole his body, whether this happened, this, that. They just wanted to catch them and get rid of them. So they were inside this house, locked away. And the Bible says, Jesus appeared in their midst. How did it happen? Talk to hello, who is there? It's me, Jesus. Is that how it happened? No, he appeared in their midst. There was a time that Jesus was breaking bread and fish, eating fish with them um, after his resurrection. And the Bible says, and he disappeared from where they were. He left, like he just went. There was something that happened to Jesus. He was in his glorified form. Amen. And the promise that we have is that as much as we are in this flesh that feels pain, that goes through childbirth, which was not childbirth pains, rather, for the, for the woman, which was not the original intent, there is coming a time where this will be transformed into something better. Amen. Amen. That is the hope that we look forward to. The hope where in the twinkling of an eye we shall be like him. That is what glorification is all about. And at that stage, that is when all that God has invested in this salvation plan will be fulfilled. Every single part of it, consummated, finalized. Where you and Christ look the same. Every part, body, soul, and spirit, looks the same. The initial stage, what happened? Your spirit was changed, right? This is another threefold of salvation. Your spirit, your nature was changed, right? The second stage is working on what part of you? The soul. Those thoughts that you think, those actions that you take, which are a result of the thoughts that you thought, are being changed, the renewing of your mind, sanctification. But then what happens to the body? Glorification. Amen. Amen. So that is where salvation will be completed, where every part of you begins to look like he does. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So let me read um, a scripture regarding that. First Corinthians 15, verse 51. First Corinthians 15, verse 51. Are we there? Okay, there shout, Amen. Amen. Awesome. Behold, I show you a mystery. This is Paul speaking. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. He says something. We shall not all sleep. You won't understand what that means. We won't all die, right? For the believer, the terminology we use for death is sleep. When Jesus wanted to raise Lazarus from the dead, what did he say? Lazarus is asleep. Like, uh, uh, the examples were confused. What are you talking about? Like, does it make sense? Why would he say he was asleep? Because there was a possibility, not a possibility, there was an assurance, rather, of his resurrection. Are you listening? There was, he was going to rise. Jesus even said something there. Can we just branch there before we go here? John 11, please. I didn't plan to say this, but I feel it's so powerful. John 11. You know something? <laughs> this is the place that has one of the shortest verses, right? Do you remember that verse? What does it say? Yes, verse 35. But then, you know, I, I lost a friend of mine 
and it was very painful. I've lost, of course, people die. Do you know people die every day? 150,000 people die every day. Every second, someone is dying. Statistically. I'm not even joking. Then in cases where there are natural disasters, the statistics go higher. Okay? So, I lost a lot of people in my life, but I think so far only four people have been very close. Very, very close. And one that hit me was what, what, the one that happened last year. And someone was like, man, don't you know we have resurrection? Blah, 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 blah. I was like, how insensitive can you be? I said, who am I? Jesus wept. I should not weep. <laughs> I mean, if my Lord and Savior could weep. And Jesus wept, but he knew he would rather was still going to rise. Think about it. Crazy. Well, let's go there. John 11, 23. Are we there? So Lazarus was dead for four days now. Jesus said he was going to come, but then Jesus lied them in a sense. In mother's eyes, it's like. When Jesus was coming, finally, and this is what happened. Jesus said unto, um, just said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Funny enough, according to Jewish tradition, this was a belief. There were, there were a group of people in the Jewish council. What are they? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, right? And even the scribes as well. But you see, the Sadducees did not believe, what's the Sadducees? Yes. Did not believe in the resurrection. Right? Am I correct? Yes. They're so sad. Yeah, they're so sad to see the resurrection. Ah. <laughs> Praise God. But they believe that there was a resurrection. My question is, what was the foundation of that belief? What was the basis of that belief in the resurrection? But nonetheless, prophecies in the Old Testament talked about a day where, you know, people rise. Alright, and she was believing that, talking about that. I know that you will rise at the resurrection of the last day. But then, this is what Jesus said to her. Jesus said unto her, I have the resurrection. And the means to this resurrection is going to happen. Are you listening? And I'm the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall be healed. Are you listening? Though he or she sleeps, they will live. And whosoever liveth and believes in me shall never die. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about something. He says, can we go back there? Verse 51. He says, I'll show you mystery. We shall not all sleep, but what? We shall be changed. We are not everybody as we are. Of course, at the time we were speaking, those guys are asleep. Are you with me? But not everyone will sleep. Who knows what I'm talking about? When Christ returns, those who are still alive will go. But the sleep, those who are asleep, who are the dead in Christ, will rise. Do you understand? So he said, whether you are you are asleep or you are alive, as long as you are in me, we are going together. There is eternal life. Amen. So verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, just like that, at that last trump, for the trumpet shall sound... And the dead shall be raised incorruptible. This is similar to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. You can write that down and read it as well. Alright, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised what? Listen to that. They shall be raised what? 
What does your version say? The dead shall be raised imperishable, incorruptible. Alright? And shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this water must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying which is saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? So maybe I'll ask me this question. Those people who are dead now, where are they? Right? That's that should be a question that will come to your mind. Those who are dead, my grandpa, my friends that passed in, where are they now? But this place reveals something very crucial. Incorruptible cannot inherit, if you read the earlier verses, incorruptible cannot inherit. Sorry, corruptible cannot inherit incorruptible. Let me say it again. Corruptible cannot inherit incorruptible. Who can tell me what that means? Yes, please, right. Very good. So what needs to happen? The corruptible must be changed to incorruptible. That is glorification. So where are they now? The truth is this. When Christ returns, that is when salvation is going to be. That is where we take on what? Incorruptible. Alright? I wish I had time to talk about it, but this is not what I was trying, I'm trying to say. But just have this in mind. That those who are asleep are not in that final place of rest. Are you seeing? They're not there yet. There's coming a time when Christ will come. And the order he gives is that those who are dead will rise first. Then we which are alive will what? Join them. And we'll be changed into one another. Amen. Alright, so have this as back of your mind. They are where Abraham is. Amen. They are where Moses is. They are where David is. Praise God. But there was coming a time where all of us will see the fullness of the promises that God has. Amen. Amen. And that happens when we are glorified. Hallelujah. Alright, so, but you see, for this plan to be executed, God used a very powerful tool to execute his plan. That plan is the gospel. You cannot talk about the basics of your faith without talking about the gospel, right? It doesn't make sense. So we're going to address the gospel. We're going to find out what is the gospel. What isn't the gospel especially? Why? Because we live in a world that tries to be politically correct. We live in a world that tries to bend to people's desires. Trying to play on people's desperation. We live in that kind of world. We live in a world where the devil is hardworking. Amen. Yes, that's the truth. Don't forget that in your mind. Don't you ever. The devil is hardworking. He's really dead. His time is short. And so he will do whatever he can to thwart the plan of God in salvation. And so it's very important that we arm ourselves with the right knowledge of what this gospel actually is. Once you have this seed, everything else is said. Everything else comes next. But this is the starting point. Praise God. So I'm going to tell you several facts about the gospel. And I want you to follow through. Before I give you what number one is, I want to tell you why this is so important. Can we go to Galatians chapter 1? You see, the gospel is such a sensitive message. 
It's a very fragile message. As long as it is powerful, it is fragile. It is sensitive. Galatians chapter 1, verse. We start from verse 6. Are we there? Galatians 1, verse 6. Alright. I marvel. That's, ah, I'm not going to crack that joke. Jesus. <laughs> I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ onto another gospel. So I'm surprised you guys are going from the truth to something else, to another gospel. But he said this, which is actually not another gospel. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. That's what I was saying. The devil is hardworking. There are some who are coming in trying to pervert the truth. And verse 8 says, But though we, who are the we he's talking about? He's talking about himself and the other apostles. Though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that which was preached by us, let him be what? Accursed. <laughs> he repeated himself again. As we said before, now I say, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have believed, let him be accursed. If he said, if an angel or any other man should preach another gospel, let him be accursed. That would sound nice, but at the same time, suspicious. He added himself into the list, though. He said, I've established something to you guys, but if somehow, Scottish so Scottish should catch me, and I come and tell you something else, let me be accursed. Is that serious? Today, there are many gospels people are coming up with. And many of you have heard it, but you don't know it's another gospel. And that's why we need to know what it is, because it's a sensitive message. Amen, no? Amen. So let's go to number one. Number one. The gospel was not a backup plan. The gospel was not a backup plan. It was not a plan B. You know, the very idea people have of what happened in the Garden of Eden was this. God created man, created all things good, pure, nice, holy, beautiful, cute. Everything was nice. And then there was this tree, very infamous tree. Knowledge of what? Good and evil. See, I've created everything. Oranges, apricots, everything. Mangoes, see, and enjoy yourself. Enjoy flex. Everything is available. This one, no, don't go there. Now, there was, everybody was watching in heaven. There was one large TV screen. We were just watching. Yeah, let's see how this Okay, okay. Day one, fine. Day two, day three. Then, he was now going somewhere. Ah. Uh-uh. What is, what is she doing? My girl, what is she doing? <laughs> then she just, you know, going away. The now came. I'm just, yeah, that's what happened actually. <laughs> and then she took the apple. Was it an apple? <laughs> <laughs> ah, I was just cracking a joke. I'm not in Jesus' name. Amen. Self-control is the fruit of the spirit. <laughs> Amen. It's actually, it's actually the apple. That's why their eyes. Oh. Oh. Their iPhones, their iPods. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, 
So they took the fruit that was forbidden, right? Then what happened? You can say yeah. And heaven was like, whoa! We did not anticipate. Oh, Jesus! Ah, where was Adam? Adam will not walk into. No, no, Adam is going to make sense. Don't you make sense? No, no, no. And I said, honey, sweet pie. This is so delicious. It's one bite. And he said, hey! Adam, ah, you don't fall hand, Oh, Jesus. And then everybody in heaven was in chaos. Everything that was calamity. What do we do? What do we do? Ah, okay, 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 okay. You know what, for this to happen, because of this, death is going to happen, but we need someone to take their place. Oh, Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, Uriel, everybody, let's go. But yeah, what are we going to do? Ah, we need to send somebody. Which of you can go for us and save mankind? And everybody was, ah, I'm not sure. Ah, this thing is hard. Then Jesus is now in one corner at the back. Nicer. I can go. Are you serious? You can't. Oh, yeah, go, 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 go. Everybody, oh, yeah, get everything ready for him. Oh, no, no. Give us your idea of what happened. Let's not go. God is all knowing. He's omniscient. He knew the end from the beginning. Even though he doesn't cause people's actions, he knew their actions beforehand. And so, him being a wise God, an all knowing God, made a solution even before the problem happened. That's who he is. He's all wise. See, you understand, when you understand the gospel, what should leave your lips at the end of the day, seeing the intricacy and, and, and the details of salvation, you say, God, you are so wise. Just was mind blown, what's my skittles? Lord, you are wise. Praise God. Because he is. And so even before this happened, this is what the Bible has to say. Look at this. Matthew 25, verse 34. Come on, open your Bibles. Don't be tired now. Matthew 25, verse 34. In case you're wondering where Matthew 25 is, after 20, Matthew 24. I'm just trying to help you. Amen. Verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Jesus was sharing a parable. It says, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There was something prepared for you right from the beginning. In fact, before the beginning even happened, there was something prepared for you. Ephesians 1 verse 4. Very popular scripture. You know, we even pray this today. Ephesians 1 verse 4, it says, According as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Love, why are you smiling? We be holy without blame before him in love. When did this happen? Before what? The foundation of the world. This was a plan that had been there from the onset. Plan A, ultimate plan A, there was no plan B, no plan C. This was the ultimate plan that was going to work. Why did this happen? Why did God Adam, why did he allow Adam to and Eve take from that fruit? Because God loves relationship. Are you with me? When there's no chance to obey, there's no relationship. 
Where there's no chance and opportunity to love, there is no relationship. And so God who will not infringe on man's free will said, I know you will fall. I'm not going to force you to do otherwise, but I will make a solution for you. And that's what he did with the gospel. How amazing. How amazing. Can we just thank God for that? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. All right, now I'm going to shake some tables. Number two. Hopefully destroy them. The gospel is not a tool for financial prosperity. Mm. Remember what I did this is to show how sensitive the gospel is and to train us to discern and at the same time preserve the message of the gospel. Amen. Alright, so when you when I see the gospel is not a tool for financial prosperity, what does I used to go to evangelism um, when I was at, as young as 12 years old and 11, 12 in my church. And we would go to the streets of Mushin, we would talk to these guys, we would share tracks. That's all I thought evangelism was, sharing tracks. Then we got to this pub where these guys were, dr- were drinking. Don't say drinking, hey, Lord. They were drinking heavily. And I walked in with one, my, my friend, she's a girl, and we walked together. And you just want to say, look at that. Ah, I'm going to see me. Ah, you see me Ah, you just say all sorts. I saw a walk there. No, sir, sir. No, sir. My name is Ken, sir. This is Abigail. Yes, sir. And we wanted to um, invite you to our church. Ah. Uh, oh, you people, you are coming again, Abby. Ah, uh, they're just talking, talking, talking. I said, sir, see, the church is amazing, sir. You can come to a church, there's blessing there, there's miracles, sir. See, you get money, any money you want, you get it. If it's what you want, you get it. Anything you want, it's yours, your job. You have a job. I showed you the flyer, and they had, they had a crusade coming up. That's exactly what was on the flyer. <laughs> miracles, salvation, jobs, money, wife, everything was there. Don't worry. And we said on her, and again, I looked at it, and I looked at it again. Ah, wife, I mean. Now that there, you'll be there, I mean. You be in church. Ah, no, no, no. We'll go on. We'll show. And to me, I was so happy that he said he will show. I think out of the fact that the only one came at And that was joy in my heart. And yes, this gospel is real. Changing lives everywhere. <laughs> but this is the I know I was using the wrong bait to fish. We are called fishers of men, but you can use the wrong bait. And you'll be held accountable for that. When you think about this, let's see. Are there wealthy people in this world who are not Christians? Do we know some of them? Should I mention names? You know them. There are some who have outrightly denied and dismissed Christianity altogether. Just go through Forbes list. Eh? Just go through the top ten. Keep going down. You will see what I'm talking about. There are some businessmen who are wealthy who are also Christians. But then, have you heard of the parable called the rich fool? That alone tells you <laughs> that you can be wealthy but concerning the things of God, you are not wise. That means you don't even accept God or Christianity. And it's not necessary for wealth to happen. Are you with me? Think about it. So if 
I can be wealthy and prosperous financially without Christ. So why do I need his death to make me wealthy? Doesn't that contradict everything? Right? See, there's an illustration I always think about. Imagine I get the chance to preach to you again. Who is the guy now? Jeff Bezos, right? The one. Biggie rules, man. That guy just rules like that. So I, I just, I, I find him. Maybe I see him. He's about to take off his private jet. Jeff, 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 wait, 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 please, sir. Wait, wait, wait. I mean, but trust me, pass. Run, run. And I said, I said, guess who are you? What do you want, man? Like, sir, I want to preach something to you, sir. It's so powerful. See, Jesus loves you so much. He died for you. But you see, he can give you anything you want for this world. You can be wealthy. You can't can even be one of the richest people in the world. <laughs> you look at you like, look at your bachelor's slippers first. Now look at you. Look at his private Um, I, I know what you're saying and all. Like, it's all cool and all of that, but. Like, I, I can start my own religion. My own money. And that's the reality. Oprah had a religion for a while. I don't know if it's still on. I do that with worshipping Oprah. Praise God. So, the question is, if, if you can have something before Christ dies, then that could not be the reason why Christ died. Right? If someone said, Oh, I climbed Mount Everest to discover this. I went through all of this to discover. Um, I did research to come up with this idea called the biometric system, where you can put your fingerprints and, and get a scan and bring it to common interest and says, This is what I went through to do all of this. Look at him. You already have that. You need to go all through that, but you have to thank you. You don't bring anything new. So if Christ had to die, you have to cry. I said cry. You have to die for something other than these temporary things. Let's go through some scriptures. Go to John 6. Oh, this is, this is a beautiful one. John chapter 6 from verse 25. Let's go there quickly. John chapter 6 from verse 25. Are we there? Alright. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea... They said unto him, Rabbit, when came... I'm sorry. Rabbi, when camest thou hither? And Jesus, this was going on. They were looking for Jesus. He had just fed the multitude with bread and fish. And they wanted to make him king. They looked for him everywhere. He hid himself. And then they finally found him. Where have you been? And this is what Jesus came to tell them. He said, Very, very, I say unto you. You seek me not because you saw miracles. Also by extension, not because you heard the words that I spoke. But what? You did eat of the loaves and were filled. Then he tells them something. This is a rebuke. Labor not for the meat which perishes, but for that meat which endures unto eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. These guys were coming for physical, material needs. Where they could get their, their needs met materially, satisfaction physically. And said, this is not what I came. I came to give you something more. These things you will have, but they will not last forever. Are you listening? The woman at the well, he said, you shall drink of the water of this well, and you will thirst again. But the water I give you will never thirst. 
Why is Jesus using this human examples of food? Because that is what the human human life prays for. The basic needs of humans are hunger and thirst, and he uses examples to show ultimate satisfaction, to show that there is a temporary side, but I came to give you something more. Praise God. Let's open to First Timothy six. First Timothy chapter six, verse three. First Timothy chapter six, from verse three. Are you there? If any man teach otherwise and consent not to the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to the doctrine which is according to godliness. What is the doctrine according to, do- to godliness? That's the gospel. Is it a doctrine, the doctrine, which accords to godliness, righteousness? That's the gospel. It says, if anyone who doesn't teach according to this, this guy is what? Verse 4. He's proud. He's what? He knows nothing. This is a serious shame. But doesn't about questions and strikes of words, where all comments, every strike means, even surmises, professed dreams of men, corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is what? Godliness. There are people who come to you that say the true mark of your spirituality and godliness is that you have prosperous, prosperous things, that you're prosperous. They'll try to, have you seen people who try to put your spirituality and your academic standing together? You are feeling, ah, you have not been praying. You have not been fasting. The spiritual life. Go and examine it. And there are people who also say that your spirituality, your righteousness, can be determined by how prosperous you are, the gain that you have. What does the Bible say against such people that say this? What did he say you should do from, with them? Look at that verse, verse 5. I think it's the King James that has it. From such, withdraw thyself. I see. From such people, run away. Run away from them. That suppose that gain is godliness. Run away from them. Verse 6. But godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. Can you see the world? See, there are many people who go into church. They are content with all that they have. But when you get into some churches, they live with all sorts of ambitions, all sorts of covetousness, all sorts of greed. And this is against the norm that God wanted. He wanted us to be content with what we have. Even when we have surplus and excess, He wants us to be content in them. Amen. Amen. Oh. Then he goes on to say this. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out of it. And having food and clothes, let us therewith be what? Content. But they that will be rich, listen to this though, many of you have not seen this before. Those that will be rich, the another translation says that desire to be rich, fall into a temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts. Which drown men in destruction and perdition. Why? Why do you think Jesus said you cannot serve two masters? You cannot serve what? God and what? Mama. What is mama? Money is such an easy God. I'm telling you. It's so easy to worship God. I said, it's not easy to worship money and run after money. So easy. 
And verse 10 says, for the love of money is what? Not money itself, but the love of it. When you desire money, there's a temptation to love it more than any other thing, especially God. And so he says, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith. Are you listening? Because they ran after these things, they've gone away. And pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But that old man of God, he's talking to you. Oh, thou, O woman of God, flee these things. Did he say, forget them or just fashion them? What did he say? Flee. Run away from them. And follow after what? It gives you the priority. After righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Am I saying that the Christian life is one of mediocrity? Where you just... You probably even look desire poverty itself to show that you are humble. I've told God though that in this life I'm going to be rich. And I'll tell you why. There was a time that someone needed something so urgent. It was a pressing need. And as much as I've grown in a family where we are general, right? Devil, but we are the <coughs> we've broken the status quo. We come from a family that is very generous. We love to give. And I said, Lord, that person asked me for, it was a very trying thing. And it wasn't that I didn't want to help. I couldn't. And I hated that feeling. I hated that feeling that as much as I want to help, I just can't. I don't have the means to accept you know, I'll reach you. Or my wealth, eh, will have purpose. My wealth will not be inspired by greed. It will be inspired by charity. Are you listening? Are you listening? So you desire to be well to do, but not so that it, it gives you a sign of status or position. Have you seen a person who has a jeep? I give this story every time. One of my dad's family, um, one of our family friends, my dad's friend, um, he, he has a G-Wagon. Alright, just recently, he got a G-Wagon. And something happened to it. Happened. Packed up, and we made have one evening service. And because he had to send it for repairs and everything, he had to use bike to get the service. And so when he came down, and we just came down, also we came up from the car. We wanted to greet him. Ah, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm just um, coming from the workshop. It's not as if you know the Okada. I just because I had to. We don't ask him to explain. No. <laughs> But those are people where you see find value in the things they own. They are not, to, in, in large sense, they are nothing without those things. They put, you know, the Bible says this, this is Luke 12, 15, that says it, that a man's life does not consist in the things that he possesses. Many people have placed their value. And even us, subconsciously, we place value in people based on the things that they own. Are you listening? If you are coming to a car park, there's an event. You see someone with a stretch limousine, and you see someone with Toyota Corolla. And both of them are entering and saying that there's only one space. Who would you allow to enter as a security guy? Maybe the Toyota Corolla guy even came inside first, but you now see the stretch limousine from afar. What would you do? You've already placed a priority based on possession. I'm not saying this is not how it's supposed to be. 
And this is not what the gospel is focused on. It has bigger goals. And it's more streamlined than we think. Praise God. Amen. Number three. The gospel is not about bodily wellness. The gospel is not about bodily wellness. So we talked about the gospel is not about wealth. Neither is it also about health. What do I mean by this? Remember what we talked about just just now? That if there's something that could be given before Christ's death and resurrection, then that is not why Christ came. Does that make sense, logically? Very good. So let's go to the Old Testament. Do you know there were so many powerful miracles that happened, even in the Old Testament? There were healings. People were raised. Elijah raised the boy from the dead. How do you know? How do you know? Naaman was healed when he went to the river Jordan. So healings were happening even in the Old Testament. But let's go forward a bit. Even before when Jesus died and resurrected during his earthly ministry, what do we see happening? Did Jesus heal people or not? Did he ask them, believe that I'm the Son of God, oh, and I'm coming to die for your sins first? What did he say? Do you believe that I can do this for you? And if they say yes, we know to be according to your faith. He healed several people. He didn't turn anybody away. Everyone who came, he prayed for and healed. The people that he couldn't heal were those who didn't believe in him and all that he was going to do for them in the healing process. But, praise God, did he heal or did he not? He did. And this was before his death and resurrection. And I remember we use the scripture from Isaiah 53. I want us to go there quickly. Isaiah 53. And I'm not saying this to um, reduce your faith in believing for healings and miracles. Alright? But I want to show you if the gospel in fact was designed for this. So, Isaiah 53, verse 5 to 6. Are we there? Isaiah is a very powerful scripture. Your spare time, read from 52, 53, 54. Just keep reading. Powerful prophecies about Jesus. Verse 5. Are we there? Are we there? Yes. Alright. But he was wounded for our what? I want you to take note of the key words there. He was wounded for what? Transgressions. He was bruised for what? Iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was what? Upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now it's very easy to see the word healed, and the first thing that comes to your mind is healing from what diseases and sickness, right? But contextually, what do we see that Isaiah is talking about? If you're not convinced, look at verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned one to his own, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see the word transgression, iniquity. What are those words representing? Sin. Sin. And the word healed means to make whole. When you purify something. So by his injuries, by his stripes and his suffering, stripes are symbolic for suffering, we are what? We are made whole. We are washed clean from sin. 
If you see perhaps infirmities, sicknesses, in the verses, then you can conclude yes. But let's talk about something else. This verse was quoted in First Peter two. Let's go to that one. First Peter two, verse twenty-four. And this one just ex- ex- expresses everything explicitly. First Peter two, verse twenty-four. Are we there? First Peter two, twenty-four. Who his own self, talking about Jesus Christ, our Lord, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sins should live unto what? Righteousness. By whose stripes he are what? What is the context of the healing? Salvation from your sins. Are you listening? Yes. Do healing still happen today? Yes. Yes. But think about it. Unbelievers get healed. You know that. Unbelievers get healed. Look at the guy that Jesus, when he was arrested, they came to arrest him. Judas gave him a kiss to identify that this is, this is the Messiah. And the ones arrested him, Peter was like, hey, if you try nonsense, shit, cool. Come on, the air of one of them. I was shouting, 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 hey, my ears will be broke, oh my gosh. <laughs> and then, do you know what Jesus did? I just picked it up. Don't do that here, man. Don't do that here. Put it back in his, in his ear hole. It was fixed. Imagine the sight. This guy was healed. I said, ah, oh, thank you, man. There we go. Carried him. Arrested him. But he healed him. So, the death and resurrection of Jesus is beautiful and powerful, but not just up to bring healing. That was not the intention behind it. The power of God is enough for healing, but there was another power that God wanted to reveal in salvation. Are you seeing? Going to prove his love for mankind, where he brings him back to fellowship and union with him, where there's no separation. That was his plan. And that's what the gospel was for. But for help, no. If something could be accessed before Christ died and resurrected, that was not the reason why it was. Christ died and resurrected. Praise God. Number four. The gospel is not rules and regulation. The gospel is not rules and regulations. Romans chapter chapter 7 verse 7 I have to be fast with this Romans 7 7 are we there what shall we say then is the law sin God forbid what is Paul talking about what is he introducing here the law right is the law sinful God forbid why should the law be sin nay I had not known sin but by the law for I had not known lost except the law had said thou shalt not what? Commit. but sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence for without the law sin was there this is what Paul was trying to establish that this law uh, 
Which law was he talking about, basically? Let me, let me give you this introduction. The law is segmented into three parts. We have the ceremonial laws. Let me give you an example of ceremonial laws. The Sabbath, the Passover, the cleansing in the temple, right? And the sacrifice they offered, ceremonial laws. You have the civic laws, right? What are the civic laws? How you relate with people, right? The tithing was also civic laws. Are you listening? Alright? Then we have the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Alright? Which one was talking about here? How do you know it was the Ten Commandments? Said, thou shalt know what's covet. So he, he says something that this law, as good as it was, the rules and the regulations, as good as they were, the problem was not that they were perfect. The problem was that I am not perfect. Right? How can you give a perfect set of rules for an imperfect person to obey without fault? What the law does is to reveal your weakness. To get you to the point where you're like, I can't do this. I can't, by my own power, I, I am not able to do this. The law exposes sin. It tells you what it is. You know, that picture of the law is when you have a torchlight shining. How many of you that the light coming out from a torchlight? What do you see? This is a particle is coming out, right? The torchlight is not bringing out those particles. They are there. But the light is just revealing them. That's what the Lord does. Reveals sin. Alright? So, he said there's something problematic about the law. The law is revealing sin, revealing sin. And he says, he said, I was alive, but without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be under death. For sin took occasion by the commandment to deceive me, and by it slew me. Let me give you what that means of this of sin taking advantage of the law. The law is good, right? But sin is not. But this is how sin takes advantage of the law. Let me this is a, a typical example I can give. I hope it's good enough. You just bake mm. some children are playing in the garden. They are playing, all the children are playing, 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 soccer. And there's this plant so beautiful and colorful and precious. All of you are playing ball. Be careful. Don't go near that plant, though. Don't go near it. Okay, okay, mommy. And they're playing, playing. Shoo. This is that plant. And there's something that they never even noticed. They are drawn to it. There's one test that they do for, that they did for children in one show like this. It's called the marshmallow test. To determine if they can, um, 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 to something self gratification, right? If they can delay their gratification. And so they had um, the marshmallows there for the kids. And there was it was covered, right? It was covered, there was one that was covered. And then I said, you know it's under this place. Said no. Marshmallows. Marshmallows? Okay. But well, I'll be back. Don't touch it. I'll be right back. Just give me a few minutes. I'll just be back in one minute. You get to ten minutes. The child was just like, the child stood up. We just played with his hand. But the point, he could not take it any longer. I just opened the thing. Child, everything. There was an instruction, and sin took advantage of that instruction. 
GC. Before the instruction came, he had no idea what was inside, and he had no idea that he was not supposed to, but since took advantage of it and brought it to his idea, brought it to his mind. And then that happened. So that's what sin taking occasion of the law meant. But if the law was meant to bring life and produce life, then why hasn't it done that in this case? Because the law was not designed for that purpose. And that's what the gospel is not about. When you go to many churches, all you hear is do's and don'ts, do's and don'ts. And ultimately, that cannot be the gospel. Look at Colossians chapter 2, from verse 20. I want you guys to put on your thinking caps in this one. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. Are we there? Colossians 2.20 It says, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Let's follow. Verse 21 Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on daily human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. Listen. What do you think Paul is talking about here? What do you think Paul is talking about here? The rules. The don't handle, don't touch, don't do this. Does that sound familiar? In the, in the Jewish tradition, there are some things that they are not allowed to do. They're not allowed to touch certain things. They're not allowed to eat certain things. They said this way, human, these were things that Moses came up with as time went. And with the people's hardness of hearts increased. That's why um, Jesus said this, that, oh, from the beginning, it was not so that the was of men happened. But why? Because of the hardness of their hearts, he allowed it to happen, right? That just was. Why? Because he was stubborn. And so this came, this was not something God instituted, this was something Moses instituted for law and order in, in the place. But he said, you have died away from such things, verse 20. Why do you still live like, like God, submitted to them? Then, look at verse 23, if I like something, this is, this is where I want to emphasize one. As much as these things show, they have an appearance of wisdom, self-imposed worship, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. As much as they are telling you, packaging you, and in a way, what we see here in this universe, this environment, is laws that are trying to constrain people but never actually change them. Don't do this. Don't care. When they go on holiday, what happens? Wow. Then they go come back during the semester. After, wow. And come back. Those laws are not changing them, they are only constraining them. I agree. Praise God. So, that is what the law does. But the gospel is not that. The gospel aims to do something more, which I'll talk about briefly. So, the, the, grace, the grace of God in the gospel is not about rules and regulations. Number five, it is not what? Works. It is grace. The gospel is not works. It is grace. Yes, I remember. Thank you. So, at this time, with Martin Luther, uh, in his time, what was very popular, it got to a point where the truth 
had been perverted. Are you seeing? The truth had been perverted in the Roman Catholic Church. They had this idea that for someone, if everybody is, is dozing up, please wake them up. Thank you. We'll soon be done. There was a time when the church was extorting money from people. In the sense that for them to free their lost lost loved ones from a place called purgatory, they had to pay penance. They had to give some money to the church, do some things to get them out, to free them from purgatory, to get them to paradise. And this man, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., there are two different guys. One is white, one is black. Amen. That's the best definition I can give. But one is from Germany, the other one is from America. And so, Martin Luther was so grieved. I wish you read up his story. Grieved in his heart that something is up here. Something is up here. Something is not right. This cannot be it. And the Holy Spirit was pressing his heart. He had sleepless nights. He was a monk. He was one of the teachers. And he was like, something is wrong here. And this was the dress that changed it all for him. Ephesians 2.8. You should know this by now. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. Are we there? Can we read together? One, two, go. Ah, you guys are sleeping. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. Let's go. Gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. God is responsible for the salvation plan, and so He is the one working everything, every way. So at the end of the day, you don't have anything to say, but Lord, don't you remember when I did this, when I did that? No, He wants you to say, Oh Lord, I remember when you did this for me 2,000 years ago. It is by grace, not by your works. Tell the person beside you, salvation, salvation is by grace, by grace through faith, faith, not by your works, by not by your efforts, by it's by grace. by grace. So salvation is a free gift. Amen. And there are some people who didn't, who couldn't just understand this. They, want, they were wrestling with it. And John 6, where we were reading before, let's go there to verse, verse 28. John 6, 28. John 6, 28. Are we there? Alright. And they said unto him, What shall we do that my work the works of God? These guys were so legalistic, were so work-based and work-oriented. What can we do to work? What are the works of God? We want to work, we want to work, and get everything we want to earn. And this is how Jesus replied them. Verse 29. He said unto them, This is the work of God. That ye believe on him who he has sent. Do you see that? <laughs> so the work is faith. <clears throat> At the end of the day, the work is faith. So this is what salvation is. Many people try to position themselves in such a way that they can earn God's favor, earn his blessings. And this is another way, another form it takes. Where you see, I, I saw one so disappointing on TV. Where the preacher was preaching, he was saying 
that, oh, I sense an anointing right now going to flow. God is going to heal you right now. I feel a healing anointing right now. But you see, God wants you to, to key into it right now. He's saying, I feel, he's saying a, a $1,500 seed. Just sow the seed and it's yours. So, you're paying for your healing, basically. That's the idea that contemporary churches are trying to bring. But you pay for your healing. There's also a subtle one too, where for God to bless you, you have to give him something to bless you. Give this, and God will bless you. Give offerings, and God will bless you. But the Bible says in Romans 8.32 that if God could give his best, his son, how would he not be paid free to give you full things? If he could give the best gift he could ever give to you free of charge, why are you trying to earn the things that should follow by your own works, by your own giving, by your own efforts? It's all about grace. Praise God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because of time, we can't spend so much time there. Um, but how do you know this? The first question is, where do uh, good works come in into this play? Is it necessary to how good works. Is it? Very good. But you see, the idea of grace is not that good works are not important. They're just not the requirement for it. So write this down. Good works are the products of salvation. Not the prerequisites. Good works are the product of salvation. Not the prerequisites. Number two, good works are the result of salvation, not the requirement. Good works are the result of salvation, not the requirement. Number three, good works are the receipt of salvation, not the payment for it. Good works are the receipt, they're the evidence of salvation, the receipt of salvation, not the payment for it. And lastly, good works are the fruit of salvation. Not the seed for it. Praise God. Good works are the fruit of salvation, not the seed for it. Amen. You can write uh, write down Titus two eleven to four, eleven to fourteen rather. Titus two eleven to fourteen, and Jude Jude one verse four. Jude 1 verse 4 talks about people who are trying to say that, oh, grace is a means of lasciviousness. And if there's too much grace, don't worry about it. You can do whatever you like. All right? But good works are important. Amen. And the fact that the evidence that there has been something happening inside. Praise God. Number six. It is not a message. The gospel is not a message of hell. The gospel is not a message of hell. It is good news. I'm going to strike a balance here, but just write that down. It is not a message of hell. It is good news. Um, one thing that I've seen throughout my years in the message of grace, there are certain people, I hope, with good intentions, who many times exaggerate the grace of God in such a measure, and it should be exaggerated. The grace of God is so abundant. Hope exaggerate as well. But where there is an unhealthy balance between 
the grace of God and a coming wrath. And there's a problem. In the message of the gospel, there is a warning. In the message of the gospel, there is a caution that truly there is a wrath coming. Why is this important? Many people preach the gospel in such a way that there is no wrath, there is no penalty for sin, there is no perishing. John 3 16 addresses it itself, right? That for God's own Lord, I give him so that whosoever believes in me will what? Perish for what happened on last night. There is a, there's a concept of perishing. That many people believe out, oh, Jesus loves, Jesus loves you, that's great, but at the end of the day, if you're warning people, there is a common wrath for sins. And that's where the need for salvation comes in. How can you know that you need malaria drugs if you don't know you have malaria? If you don't know there's a problem? Are you with me? So when you see there is a problem, then you will need a solution. And that's why it's important to invest in the gospel. But the gospel is, and as much as there is that side of exaggerated grace, there's also the side of exaggerated condemnation, exaggerated punishment. That God is angry at you, He hates you. Turn away from your sins, turn or burn. That's the message. Right? But there is a healthy balance. As much as there is grace abundant, there is a wrath to come. Amen. But the gospel in itself, the Greek word is oagelion. And that means too good to be true. When you think about it, you're like, whoa, are you serious? How can you receive a gift where you have no interest in it? Everything was God from the beginning to give you life, to give you everything, abundance and inheritance, a place in His kingdom. That is beautiful. And so the gospel is good news. And when you preach it, preach it like it's good news. Amen. Tell someone like it's actually good news. Praise God. Oh. So let me write, let me give you some places to check out. First Thessalonians 1 to 10. 1 verse 10 rather. First Thessalonians verse, chapter 1 verse 10. Romans 5 verse 9. Romans 5 verse 9. Ephesians 5 verse 6. John 3 verse 36. This is the highlight where the wrath of God is and the contrast with that there is actually good news in it that we don't have to receive that punishment. Praise God. Now to conclude this teaching this is where I've been building up to and this is the seventh and last point, fact about the gospel. The gospel has the power to change and transform. Or rather let's say the power to save and transform. The gospel has the power to save and transform. Romans 1.16. Can we say it together? I want to go. Right? Jews and Gentiles. Right? But the gospel has what? Power in itself. You're, you're preaching the gospel is not you trying to do all the convincing, trying to change people. You don't have the ability to. But the gospel, when it is preached, effectively has that power to save and transform. And that's what brings me to that but moment. As a believer, your testimony is but. That sounds weird. But that is your testimony. As a believer, you must have had that but moment in your life. And that's the but moment of transformation. Let me show you what I mean. 
Can we go to Romans chapter 6, verse 23? Are you there? Romans 6, 23, very popular verse. Can we read it together? Can we now read it with the idea of the voice? I want you to emphasize on it. Say it together. One, two, go. I do not feel your bottle. One more time. Amazing. Titus 3, verse 3. Get you. If it are, ah, the truth is, 
many of you in your lives, that God's moment is not definitive. People cannot see the difference between your past and your present, but that's a problem. Praise God. That's the place of bearing fruit, good works, so that men they see your good works and what? Chicken. So there must be a change. That's the definitive moment of your life. What God took away the past. As 7 Corinthians 5 17 says, what? Timothy in Christ, what happens? He's new. The old is what? Gone, kicked out of the door. And the new has come. Praise God. So this is the new. But God, who is rich in mercy, and for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he did what? Quickened us, made us alive together, gave us his life in Christ, and put us where Christ is. That is the location. We talked about what? Change of nature. A change of position, a change of location. This is the change of location from the world and into Christ. And the position that you now have in Christ is what? You are a son and a child of God. You are a daughter of God, deeply loved by Him. Praise God. That but moment. And in Ephesians 5, verse 8. Can we read this one together? And I, I, I want you to read it in personal terms. Talking about yourself. Ephesians 5, verse 8. 1, 2, go. So I will what? Walk as a child of the light. I was what? Did they say you were in darkness or you were once darkness? But now you are a child of light. Praise God. Sometimes you just need to step back and think of all that you have in Christ and in the gospel. And just thank God. I, I bet you the things you will never run to again. Because implications of what Christ has done for us are so beautiful. When you read John 3 16 and it got you off of your feet and you started praising God. Well, as you read Ephesians 2 8 and you started bursting out with tears and enjoy and singing for what God has done for you in Christ. So, to many of us, these things have become too normal and too normative. You just go through the motions, see all the everything, but it hasn't gone deep. And I tell you, if you are not passionate about this gospel and this grace that you are receiving, you will not be passionate in any other thing. And your walk with the Lord will not be enjoyable to be seen as a burden. So, let's relax. Enjoy the grace of God. Rejoice in it. And remind yourself of it every time. There will be times when there will be guilt, when there will be condemnation, when you'll be reminded of your sins, when you'll be drawn to the loss of your past. Remind yourself of the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Every day, remind yourself of it. And remind yourself that you are not darkness, you are what? Child. That was a very edifying message, wasn't it? We really do hope that you've been blessed and your heart enlightened with the truth. We are committed to providing good edifying materials, all for your growth in the faith. For more, you can check out our website, Ruth
365365.org or connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Vivify365. Thank you for listening and stay blessed.